This is Radio Kurdistan reporting from northern Iraq near the Syrian border. This is a beautiful day in the mountains, in fresh air, under clear skies, and I am rappelling along a rope down a cliffside with a squad of YBS International during a fitness training. Sí. Yeah, you can see I'll get a real good view then. Later, we're going to eat lunch on the grass and admire the flowers and eat herbs from the soldier's own garden, which they're very proud of. Today, I plan to podcast about the Turkish TB2 drone, but I got much closer to a subject than I expected. As the squad begins to move out from the shade of a tree, a drone appears in the sky. It appears to be circling at low altitude. We can hear the high-pitched whine of its single engine. The drone is clearly circling above us, observing our base. There's no one else in this mountain range but us. It's possible the turkey may be looking to strike a group of fighters out in the open. After about an hour undercover, we decide to split into two teams. One team will remain at post, while I escape with the other team through YBS's vast tunnel system. Okay, so we can hear Turkish drone overhead trying to strike this uh, base. It's been hovering for hours now. And so we decided to escape the mountain using this tunnel system. Uh, and it's going to take uh, a few hours of this uh, going through this tunnel to... Uh, to uh, get out of the operating area of this uh, drone, or at least to get away from the area that the drone expects us to be. Uh, Turkish drone TB2 uh, carries a payload of four missiles. So, looks like they're looking for us. They've been hovering for a while. And uh, so, it's gonna keep on going down this tunnel. The tunnel echoes with our voices, both in English and Spanish, for we are two Americans and two Spaniards in our group. As the drone hunts us from above, we have our own problems deep beneath the surface. At times, the tunnel gets extremely narrow. At other times, the muddy floor grabs our boots and refuses to let go. Oh no! Huh? Oh no! <laughs> oh no! <laughs> oh, that's mud. That is mud. Worst mud in the world in Iraq. Very sticky. Yeah. Have you experienced this too? Yeah. It's but, like a mustard. Yeah, it won't come out of your shoes at all. Okay. We're in the clear. Oh. After we get past the muddy parts, our boots are caked with what looks like pounds of brown fudge. And my uh, feet feel like weights are on them. It is a strange coincidence that earlier in the day, I interviewed an expert specifically about the TB2 drone, which is probably the drone which is right now menacing us with its high-pitched engine, searching for us with its high-definition infrared cameras. This tunnel takes us four grueling hours to travel. Let me flash back to this morning's interview. Dr. Thoreau Redcrow, known to his Kurdish friends as Soro, which means red, 
is an American global conflict analyst and Kurdish studies scholar with a PhD in conflict analysis and resolution. He conducted his uh, doctoral research embedded with uh, Kecheke guerrillas throughout uh, Greater Kurdistan. And um, uh, so, yeah, so, uh, so thanks for, uh, thanks for uh, 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 coming on the podcast today. Sure. Uh, it's great to be here. I'm always glad to help. I don't know if anybody's podcast from a target area of Turkish drones before about Turkish drones. Um, and, yeah. uh, but you have a lot of uh, knowledge about uh, the, the Bayraktar TB2 drone, which we hear a lot about in the news right now, right? Yeah, it's actually a, you know, a pretty fascinating story um, when you look at the way that the Bayraktar drones were developed. Um, and you know, by Turkey, and then their sort of geopolitical ramifications for the world today. The Bayraktar drones, the, you know, the story of them actually goes back probably about eight years or so. Um, but, but I think, you know, to start at the beginning, the more even fascinating aspect is just how the Bayraktar drones in Turkey came to be. I mean, um, sort of the brainchild of them is a man named Selçuk Bayraktar, and uh, he is the CTO of, 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 you know, the Bayraktar company. So, and the drones are named after him, his, his last name. And he is actually the son-in-law of Erdogan, the leader or IE dictator of Turkey. Um, he's married to Sumeya, his, you know, Erdogan's daughter. And so the, to understand sort of the way that Bayraktars are interwoven into the Turkish society, you have to look at the fact that, um, how close he is that he, he's sort of within the inner circle of Erdogan, you know, a, a leader who's notorious for, you know, turning on his uh, colleagues and, and being paranoid about them, you know, because he is married to Erdogan's daughter, it makes him feel like he can trust, you know, Selçuk and give him all of these responsibilities and, and allow him to develop the weapon industry. But, and so what, perhaps which the biggest, first? Oh, yeah, uh, which, uh, yeah. like, uh, did, did he have a, a thing for his daughter and then get into the inner circle? Or did he get into the inner circle and said, oh, yeah, you know, also, yeah, can you can <laughs> marry your daughter? Yeah. Well, see, yeah, his, his father was actually um, a developer of, like, auto auto parts in Turkey, and but happened to be an advisor of Erdogan back when Erdogan was the mayor of Istanbul. So prior to, um, you know, becoming a national leader in Turkey when he was sort of more of a controversial kind of Islamist uh, leader who was actually jailed even back during that time. So he, when Erdogan sort of, be, before he became the Erdogan that he is now, uh, Selçuk's father was an advisor for him. So so the background uh, and the connection between him and the family, you know, go back. But ironically, after this, Selçuk comes, he's educated in the United States. So the, the, this is the other kind of dark irony is that his skills his engineering skills that he develops are probably thanks to the united states universities he gets his master's degree at penn in pennsylvania and then while he's there he he starts working on drone work and mit the massachusetts institute for technology discovers this and gives him a scholarship to come to boston to go to mit where he gets another's master's degree so his um his knowledge base and in sort of engineering and the skills that he is now using for the Bayraktar drones, which is being used to kill, you know, people all throughout the world, was ironically developed at United States universities. Um, yeah, and, maybe and not ironically. Is... And I think that one of his MIT professors uh, said that he was kind of ashamed that MIT was uh, involved in uh, 
in yeah. uh, development. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, in another kind of ironic twist, you know, Selchuk at this time when he's at MIT, he's sort of a, a, a quasi leftist. You know, he, he said he was reading Chomsky and he was sort of was against U.S. imperialism at this time. And so, you know, to now see him as the father of a drone program, uh, which is carrying out actions which the young Selchuk would have probably criticized because he was against, you know, his, his development of drones was because he was against us using drones in Iraq. And so it's kind of an, you know, uh, an odd twist to now see Turkey basically behaving in the exact same way that the young Selchuk would have probably criticized um, these sort of imperial neo-Ottoman policies that Turkey's carrying out um, are, you know, a, a, a direct result of his, of, uh, you know, of his creations. But, um, you know, to to kind of extend on that, to understand, uh, you know, the Bayraktar drones and how they're used, you know, Turkey developed them domestically to be used against the PKK, you know, the Kurdistan Workers Party guerrillas, um, you know, Kurdish fighters that have been, you know, battling for, uh, you know, um, Kurdish rights within Turkey since, you know, 1978. But you know, the, um, the U.S. didn't want to sell Turkey their own drones, you know, their Reaper drones, because they pretty much knew that Turkey would misuse them and, and use them against Kurdish civilians and and do a lot of the depopulation um, uh, of Kurdish villages in the same way that in the, in the 90s. So, for instance, in the late 90s, the United States sold a lot of Cobra helicopters to Turkey, especially in the year 1997. And Turkey basically used this equipment to burn down 4,000 Kurdish villages and 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 carry out you know huge massacres against the Kurds. So the United States, uh, I think, understood that if Reaper drones were sold to them, Turkey would use them in a similar way. So uh, what this caused Turkey to do is develop their own domestic drone industry. So Bayraktar enters the scene at the point where they realize, okay, well, if the West is not going to give us drones, we're going to make our own. And so you know, and throughout the kind of, you know, 2008, 2010, 2012, that that's where you're seeing the development of these Bayraktar drones to the point where they're sort of put in the air in the first time to, uh, as un, uh, unarmed drones to kind of spy on, on PKK guerrillas, uh, you know, kind of around 2016 or around that time. And so um, this is when they're unmanned, you know, now they're obviously manned drones, the, the, the TB2 are, um, and, and what makes them so lethal and effective is, uh, one, the fact that they're very cheap. They're only one-sixth the cost of, of, of a Reaper drone that the U.S. sells. Um, two, the, you know, they're fairly small. You, you can carry one even on the back of, like, a pickup truck if you had to. And uh, the fact that they, um, you know, have, carry laser-guided munitions, so, you know, they're very, fairly accurate. And so um, and, uh, if you so wanted to... And just going back about 60 seconds, I think that um, I wanted to emphasize that the... Well, Bayraktar himself, he certainly was motivated to to uh, build drones for Turkey, but it seems that the whole Turkish military, Turkish government put their support behind this idea of homegrown drones uh, specifically to circumvent uh, human rights concerns and the difficulty of importing their uh, weapons because people just didn't want to be involved in their genocide, right? Oh, uh, yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, the, you know, tur Turkey as a, as a country has always known that um, their foreign policy uh, it, it is so volatile that, that they, you know, always have to be prepared to re rely on themselves. Development of these uh, drones 
you know, what was because of that. Um, you know, I, I think it's uh, worth discussing, you know, Turkish foreign policy, uh, you know, briefly just from the last, you know, five years. I mean, it's there's probably no other country in the world that has carried out more sort of, uh, you know, aggressive um, uh, foreign policy actions than Turkey. I mean, when you when you look at the fact that they've essentially, you know, throughout the entire region, um, they've you know, threatened to seize Greek islands in the Aegean Sea. They've threatened to uh, expand Varosha in, in Cyprus and drill for oil in Cyprus. They've, you know, pushed the Muslim Brotherhood against Sisi in Egypt. They have uh, tried to get involved in Kashmir on, on, on behalf of Pakistan. They've tried to control the airport in Kabul for the Taliban. Uh, they've, you know, brought jihadist fighters from Syria into uh, Artsakh uh, to help Azerbaijan basically murder Armenians. Uh, they have, you know, sought an imperialist policy with Somalia and tried to develop, you know, military ties there in Somalia and even in Mali. Um, they've, you know, I mean, it, it. They've brought. They have a warlord in Libya, uh, the the GNA that they have propped up and used Bayraktar drones in Libya as well to, you know, to conduct that policy. Um, and they've sold these Bayraktar drones to uh, Aliyev in Azerbaijan, which he then used to, uh, you know, kill Armenians in, in the war uh, in Artsakh uh, recently. Um, you know, Turkey's even selling these Bayraktar drones to uh, uh, the Ethiopian government so that they can use them in Tigray. You know, they've recently uh, bombed like a refugee camp and killed 60 civilians with one of the Bayraktar drones. So, I mean, when you understand that Erdogan's foreign policy is basically to sow destruction literally everywhere he can. And um, he unabashedly gets away with it because U.S. foreign policy can't hold him accountable because they're worried that he'll then go fully into Moscow's orbit. And Russia can't hold him accountable because they're worried that he'll you know, actually behave like a NATO member. Um, he sort of has carte blanche to do whatever he wants uh, throughout the world. Uh, foreign policy and domestically. I mean, he can jail, you know, I mean, uh, he's jailed hundreds of thousands of people within Turkey to the point where they had, they have to construct jail, you know, new jails every month. Um, you know, Osman Kavala, the, the you know, well-known philanthropist was just recently jailed, uh, which led to a huge outcry in the West. But again, the West will not do anything and, um, and, and will allow it to happen in the same way that they have, uh, you know, for, for decades of, of Erdogan's rule. So, um, this is particularly what makes the Bayraktar drone so dangerous is because you have a world actor uh, in Erdogan who is so bent on sort of uh, his neo-Ottoman worldview where he wants to expand Turkish influence throughout the entire region. He kind of believes that he's sort of resurrecting the, you know, the Ottoman empire to its you know, former glory and, and, and making uh, Turkey sort of the center of, of, uh, of Asia and, and Europe again. I think we are kind of at a turning point right now because uh, I see things as uh, phase one, especially when talking about drone policy, phase one is what happened before uh, Ukraine and now we're in phase two because in phase one you see like Ethiopia and uh, Armenia and basically the Erdogan looks like an asshole. Yeah, I mean, he, his, he's, he has like a shitty reputation. Um, uh, although people can't, uh, he, uh, people can't do anything uh, against uh, Turkey for the reasons you mentioned. Uh, at least Erdogan yeah. looked bad 
you know. And now um, I'm feeling that now that we're uh, getting into the Ukraine discussion, that um, both Erdogan is looking like the peacemaker, he's negotiating the parties and so forth, and then uh, the drone, uh, which uh, has been seen in Ethiopia and different places as this like random killing machine, is now yeah. considered, oh, this is a surgical strike weapon that actually saves uh, uh, lives, saves collateral damage, and uh, allows people to fight the uh, fight uh, like the PKK guerrillas without without, uh, uh, you know, while ensuring the safety of the population is like, wow, you know, what, it's like a 180 degree turn here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, well, first to go back to your you know comment about his his popularity or unpopularity, I think you have to separate parts of the world. You know, for instance, Erdogan would, is very popular uh, uh, throughout a lot of the, you know, Turkic states or in certain parts of the uh, you know, Islamic world where he's sort of seen as standing up to the West, you know, quote, standing up to the West. Um, you know, he, like he, he was given a, uh, you know, I mean, he's, he's sort of, uh, they had a parade in, in um, you know, in Azerbaijan that he attended, you know, with the president of Azerbaijan, where it was sort of seen as Turkey is the one that helped them reclaim Artsakh, you know, which they, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh is another name for it, but, you know, I use the you know, Armenian name Artsakh for it, um, that he, you know, is responsible for helping his Turkic brothers in Azerbaijan. Um, you know, if, and despite the fact that Erdogan is so unpopular, you know, throughout parts of the West, that hasn't stopped Western countries or other non, non-Western countries from wanting to buy these drones. So for instance, right now, the countries buying that already have, have a Bayraktar drone, you have like a Kyrgyzstan, Morocco, Pakistan, Qatar, Turkmenistan, Azerbaijan, Ethiopia, Ukraine, you know, and then obviously Turkey, but, you know, Poland is trying to buy them at the moment, Iraq, Niger, and then you have a whole list of countries who want to buy them, but haven't purchased them yet. Uh, you know, Albania, Bulgaria, Hungary, Kazakhstan, Latvia, Oman, Rwanda, Somalia, Serbia, and Slovakia. So why this is so dangerous is, you know, the Western states, uh, you know, have have sort of kept a lid on on drones in the sense that they didn't want them to proliferate. Now, obviously, for their own sort of hegemonic reasons, for their own kind of imperialist reasons, they didn't want all the states of the world to have drones. They wanted to be the only ones to have them. Um, but the the opposite extreme is a is a world where every nation in the world has drones and lots of them, and you basically turn the skies into you know killer robot fields where every nation can now. Uh, very easily, you know, attack its own domestic population when, you know, when they're trying to rebel against their government. And, uh, you know, whereas the West tries to sort of have some um, regulations when they sell their drones and, and, and what they're going to be used for, Turkey basically sells a no questions asked policy when they sell it to a country. They, they sell the drones to them and you can use them for whatever you want. And because Turkey has this, uh, you know, a policy of, hey, it's just business. It's, it's not personal. Um, you know, these drones are going to be used in the next, you know, several decades. These countries all around the world are going to be carrying out, you know, drone strikes on their own popul on their own populations to quell dissent, um, stop any kind of rebellions, and you know, we're really entering into a dangerous phase where. Uh, 
you know, the, the way that drones kill are is sort of so clinical, and there and you don't even need a human being even, you know, present there. That there's no risk to the state to deploy the drone up in the air, other than the financial cost of buying it. And so you have these sort of killer robots <laughs> flying around the skies, and in a, in a push of a button at any moment, you can blow up, you know, the vehicle of someone that you don't like. Uh huh. Um, yeah, it's interesting that, um, well, uh, with the drone. Drones are controlled by, uh, you know, over the radio waves from an operator, usually on the ground. But because of the uh, the fact that this is the most vulnerable part of the drone is uh, the fact that yeah. it's remotely controlled, then there is a lot of, uh, uh, you know, it's it's vulnerable if if um, uh, somebody can can uh, jam the radio signals to the drone. So because of that. The, they're designing these Turkish drones so that they're a lot more automated. So if uh, so, once it's in the air, it doesn't really have yeah. to communicate with the ground controller all that much. It uh, goes searching around for its target, and then once it finds its target, um, it, it it asks for permission to strike the target from the operator. So that really limits the amount of time of airtime that you need on the radio to control the drone, which makes it a lot uh, less vulnerable. But it also means that these drones, as you say, are turning into just basically autonomous robots in the sky. And eventually, they're not going to have to ask for permission at all. You know, they're, they're just going to be killing whatever seems to fit the profile that it was programmed to do, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, Bayraktar is currently trying to develop, you know, sort of self-autonomous drones that don't, you know, require any flyer that can pick out a target on its own, you know, decide when to strike can just hover, you know, all day until it sees, you know, an image that meets its uh, pre-programmed target and then sort of attack it. Um, you know, you have the TB2s and the, and the TB3s the, uh, drones, but they're also, develop, you know, de developing these suicide, what they call suicide drones, which are, hundreds of kind of small little pod drones that almost fly kind of like a like you know like a group of bees or whatever you, you could call them and they fly in these big packs you know you might have 10 20 50 at a time and they are basically you know they act in a suicide fashion so they you'll program them fly for the next you know uh, 10 kilometers and any vehicle you see automatically swoop down and, and crash into it and blow it up you know and and they're rigged with explosives already so um you know, these new suicide drones are almost impossible to stop because there's so many of them all swooping down at you at one time that any kind of like anti-drone uh, strategy to, you know, deploy or shoot them down is virtually, is virtually impossible. You can almost think of them as like flying grenades that, you know, come down in packs of 50 or 100 at a time. Um, and so you can imagine if you're a, you know, a group of, you know, 20 gorillas on the side of a mountain and then all of a sudden you have a, uh, you know, 100 uh, suicide drones swooping down on you all all at one time. I mean, there's you almost have no chance. There's nothing you can do against that. And so, you know, these uh, these suicide drones are not only being developed by Turkey, but you know, the United States and, and other uh, nations are also working on these. For instance, the U.S. Uh, has has given some of these kind of suicide esque type drones to Ukraine. You know, already. Yeah, I think but, Switchblade. You know, as far right? as, yeah, w w you know, which which leads us to the idea of the Bayraktar drones in Ukraine, which is a whole other. <laughs> kind of fascinating and interesting issue. Um, yeah, you know, well, the I, first thing I want to say about that is that um, Turkey 
is supplying drones all over the damn place. And, uh, and the problem is, is that they, they, ha they do have allies, allies with the U.S., allies, uh, they're allied with, the, uh, with Russia. And so since they want to sell these drones to so many countries, they have, if, if they have already been in conflict with uh, their allies. So uh, the first time Russian and uh, the first time Turkish drones uh, went against Russian weapons, I think, was in Libya. And uh, then, yeah. uh, but now it's basically Turkish drones are directly killing Russian troops. And um, I have heard, I think the Turkish uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, said, well, the issue is that, you know, we, we're not allied with Ukraine. We are just, uh, you know, uh, Ukraine is just a customer. And uh, once yeah. mm -hmm. they buy the drones, those are not Turkish weapons. Those are Ukrainian weapons. And we don't have anything to do with that. But the problem with that is that Turkey has accused different states and different organizations for years of uh, supporting the uh, PKK, which is the organization that they are uh, most, uh, you know, that's their arch enemy. And so uh, they say, oh, you know, you are supplying weapons to the PKK. And so therefore, uh, you know, you are, uh, you know, you're on the side of the terrorists. You're on the side of the PKK. But now, because of their profit motive, they've, they've kind of changed the rules. And they're, now they're like, oh, you know, if we, if, uh, if we sell a drone, now we don't have anything to do with it. We're, you know, now it's a Ukrainian drone. You you had mentioned you know the foreign minister yeah I mean uh, Chova Shoglu the foreign minister in Turkey he he asked that pe that the world stop calling them i.e. Turkish drones you know quote unquote Turkish drones because he realizes that you know Vladimir Putin in Russia is very upset by the use of these Turkish drones to kill Russian soldiers um, and the fact that you know the uh, even beyond that um, these Bayraktar drones have 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 sort of become like a almost like a robotic folk hero in, in, in Ukraine. Um, for instance, the, I guess the, the Kiev Zoo recently named you know, a baby lemur that was born there, they named him Bayraktar. And there's these folk songs now in Ukraine where Ukrainians sing you know, these odes to the Bayraktar. And, and, you know, and a lot of times in the cities that Russia is occupying at the moment, you'll have Ukrainian crowds, they'll gather and they'll go to the city hall and they'll and they'll chant like Bayraktar, Bayraktar, like at the Russian soldiers as a way to like mock them. That is the interesting aspect too, just that uh, what the Bayraktar drone means kind of like culturally. What distinguishes the, uh, the Bayraktar drone a lot is that in a sense it's its own storyteller. See, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a camera guy, I'm a, I'm a filmmaker, so mm. I think about that, that essentially it's, it's sort of like if you're a reporter and you, um, you know, you're, you're in a war zone to tell a story, and so, of course, you want to be the independent reporter to, uh, to see what the military is doing, but imagine that instead of you bringing your own camera, that uh, the military 
provides the camera and provides the camera operator and you can only see what the military wants you to see <laughs> in your story. Yeah. That, that affects the story. So when you look at uh, the drone, um, CNN doesn't have a drone. So, yeah. you know, we are relying on, you know, on the footage from the drone whenever, you know, the Western media is covering this story about how, uh, you know, how the, this drone took out an airstrike. And so the military or wh whatever military is uh, controlling the drone gets the first uh, shot at telling the story of what this drone is doing. And, and uh, reporters, media people uh, have almost no choice but to accept uh, what, uh, I mean, we're seeing it through their eyes. We, we don't have a separate yeah. perspective to see uh, the war. We're seeing it through their camera. Do you know what I mean? Um, so yeah, there is this sort of dehumanization that takes place when you're operating a drone because you know you're killing from such a far distance away. Um, they're just you know on they're just little dots at the time when the missile strikes. You don't have to see them on the ground. You don't have to hear the you know writhing pain of the person who's maybe bleeding out or, or screaming in their last moments. You don't have to see the body parts of that are scattered all around after you carry out the strike. And so, yeah, there is this very kind of uh, clinical, um, you know, force where you can just j j just kill people and, and move on and then, you know, move about your day. And this is why drones can particularly be so problematic and dangerous. Um, and the other thing I would say to understand the sort of success of Bayraktar drones, you have to look at the fact that there's not many success stories coming out of Turkey at the moment. I mean, you have 70% inflation, you have a collapsing lira. I mean, uh, you know, the, the the kind of classic cliche is that every time the lira starts dropping, Erdogan picks another country to attack. You know, usually it's the Kurds as well. So, you know, he always carries out an attack on, on the Kurds, either in Iraqi Kurdistan or Southern Kurdistan or in Rojava. And, you know, to help his his domestic uh, support, because if there's one thing that, you know, his sort of neo-fascist uh, MHP and AKP base can rally around, it's killing Kurds or attacking other countries and sort of, you know, um, being tough and, and strong, quote, strong, um, you know, so he. You know, Erdogan uses the Bayraktar drones as sort of the one, it's like the one thing on the ledger that he can say, look at something we're doing right and something we're doing correct. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. You know, I mean, and, the, guy, the guy doesn't know shit about economics, obviously. He, I mean, his inflation is going crazy. His financial policy is, uh, is idiotic. And, uh, but as, as you say, uh, you know, um, uh, the, he he doesn't have somebody with an MIT, MIT uh, degree in economics, but he has somebody with an MIT degree in engineering. And the Bayraktar drone shows that you know Turkey could still kick ass, whatever. You know, as as far as w with the drones being used in Ukraine, um, I mean, you can you can understand why a Ukrainian population who doesn't have uh, you know a lot of hope at the moment might look to these Bayraktars as sort of their savior or you know develop these songs for them. However, I doubt that most Ukrainians know or are aware of the fact that these Bayraktar drones are used you know to massacre Ethiopians or massacre Kurds or uh, was used to murder Armenians um, in Artsakh or you know is sold throughout the world to dictators so that they can kill their own people. Um, you know so the kind of nuance on the Bayraktars is lost. All they are is sort of this uh, symbolic kind of thing that they've developed to in Ukraine where, you know, they're seen as like our, our 
our um, magic bullet, you know, the thing that's going to help us win the war are going to be these, you know, these drones from Turkey. And that's why it becomes so absurd when you consider the fact that Erdogan fashions himself as like a mediator and, and tries to hold these peace conferences in Turkey between the two sides, between Russia and Ukraine, while his drones are literally murdering Russian soldiers. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. You know, and, and, you know, and, and he's sitting sort of holding these conferences. Um, now, of course, he also has, you know, purchased uh, you know, the missile systems from Putin and Russia as well. So, you know, like I, like I talked about earlier, he always tries to position himself where he, he never fully alienates Russia and Vladimir Putin because Turkey needs them, you know, for tourism, for a lot of their wheat, for a lot of their, uh, um, you know, for, for, for various economic reasons, Turkey needs Russia. And so, you know, and you're even seeing now, I guess, in the last day or so, you know, Finland and Sweden announced that they wanted to join NATO. Um, and, you know, Turkey has veto power on that because the way that NATO works is every country, all of them have to um, uniformly agree to allow in a new member. And so Erdogan is sort of threatening to veto allowing Finland and Sweden uh, into NATO based on the fact that especially Sweden is um, home to a lot of, uh, you know, Kurdish activists and uh, Kurds who have had to flee Turkey from, you know, Erdogan's jails and have, have relocated to Turkey. And Erdogan's position is basically, oh, you know, Sweden is too soft on, on the PKK and too soft on Kurdish, what he would call separatists. And so, you know, his, uh, you know, he's basically threatening to veto allowing Sweden into NATO unless they crack down on the Kurds. And so once again, you have this you know, this situation where, you know, um, sort of uh, Turkey's pathological obsession and hatred with, with punishing, you know, uh, Kurdish rights wherever they exist in the world is now going to lead into a situation where does Sweden sell out the Kurds in order to, uh, you know, enter into NATO? Um, does Finland, you know, crack down on the Kurds in order to be allowed, um, you know, basically assuage Erdogan? I mean, you have this sort of you know, despot dictator Erdogan, who is now telling these European states, you know, I'm I'm the one with the power here, and you're going to do what I want, or I'm going to, you know, use my the fact that I'm in NATO to cause to cause you problems. And this is why, whether one is a supporter of NATO or not, there's almost no argument for Turkey being in NATO. I mean, the um, even from a sort of pro-Western standpoint, you could argue that Turkey <laughs> shouldn't be in NATO. And even from an anti-Western standpoint, you would argue that Turkey shouldn't be in NATO. There's almost <laughs> and no also, argument. Also, my standpoint <laughs> is, I, why should anybody be in NATO? I mean, why, why should well, there yes, be I mean, a NATO, you know? But, exactly. But, you know, if the, the I mean, yes, the, one could argue that NATO itself shouldn't even exist. But if a NATO were to exist, you know, Turkey's entry into it, even amongst the supposed principles that NATO stands for, which are obviously most of the time not even followed, but Turkey doesn't even fit, you know, it's uh, on paper, uh, you know, policies and goals of NATO and sort of the, what, what, you know, you could call it the kind of false aspirations that they say they believe in. Turkey is the exact antithesis of all of those. Yeah, I, I so, think that the, the, you know, the main principle of like post-war Europe and international law since World War II is that um, you should be able to join these alliances upon the principle that you don't want to invade other countries. Yeah. And it's basically as simple as that. I mean, you know, and how many yeah, countries and, and are they you in? Know. I mean, you know, I mean, they're, they're here, they're in Iraq, they're in Syria, you know. 
Well, yeah, and Turkey's role in, in NATO has you know, evolved over time. You know, I mean, Turkey was actually one of the founding, like, first members back in the 1950s. They were put into NATO, and their their basis then was as part of the Cold War. Turkey was, you know, seen as a sort of a secular state, the one kind of predominantly Muslim state that the West could rely on, and they were seen as. Um, you know, cynically, they were sort of the cannon fodder. If a war ever broke out with the Soviet Union, it, you know, it was like, okay, we have this huge army of of Turkish soldiers. Of you know, we'll throw a million Turks at the Soviet Union first and use them as like the cannon fodder. To, you know, at the start of the war, that was sort of the kind of you know 1950s era way of thinking of why you know why is Turkey even allowed into NATO to begin with? And you know, they had the second largest uh, army in NATO. Um, you know, for, for for a long time, they still do, and so. You, you know, you have this huge, you know, manpower force, especially in when you look at the fact that European countries don't usually want to spend a lot on their military and they, you know, they don't have large militaries. And then here you have, uh, you know, the, the Turkish state, which is uh, willing, you know, having an extremely large military and sort of I think the West thought, OK, well, you know, why not allow them in and they can be kind of our grunt foot soldiers um, in any kind of conflict with the Soviet Union. The problem is, is that. Uh, sort of over time, Turkey caught on to this and started to play the, you know, after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, they now play Russia and the United States off of each other. Uh-huh. But, uh, but key among all, all of that has to do with the Kurds because uh, it's, it's, yeah. a, it's a geopolitical issue, major, the, the major geopolitical issue, domestic and international for, for Turkey. And it's also what motivates Turkey to do a lot of stuff with NATO and with Russia. But I want to ask you to speak on two things, but really they're kind of like one thing. But I, I want you to, uh, to uh, uh, speak on two things. Uh, one is this issue of uh, this, uh, this uh, technological superiority thing from the uh, mm -hmm. Bayraktar drones, uh, kind of messing with all our heads um, and believing that technological superiority of empire is basically, uh, you know, invincible, and that, you know, which is the story of Afghanistan. Afghanistan is the longest war of the United States. There have been many, I don't even know, uh, I, I can't even count how many, how many movies and television shows show the superiority of drones and all the other technological stuff that the United States uh, threw at Afghanistan. Of course, we, uh, mm -hmm. we know now that they knew that they were, uh, uh, the United States knew that they were defeated for something like eight years or something. And yeah. um, that this issue about drones and all that stuff, it, it messes with our heads. It, it gets this idea that, oh, you know, like there is no way to oppose, uh, uh, you know, empire and all this technology with mm -hmm. a guerrilla force. Even though um, a, uh, an inferior guerrilla force, the Taliban, was able to defeat the United States. So that's number one. Number two, which uh, is very related, and also you have the most experience of all the experiences you have. You have the most experience uh, for us is this issue about the PKK. And mm -hmm. the other uh, militias, like uh, the militia that, uh, that uh, I know very well, I'm actually waiting for these guys to pick me up, the uh, YBS. 
um, and uh, the uh, the uh, uh, YPG, um, and uh, this idea that Turkey is going to be able to wipe out like the Kurdish revolution or completely achieve its military goals against the Turkish revolution through the use of their superior technology, their drones and so forth. And so if you could speak on the, uh, those things. Uh, sure, yeah, I mean, the first of all, you know, although drones are destructive, um, you know, they're, they're never in the, in the history of warfare has ever been, you know, the sort of, uh, uh, trump card weapon that can can outweigh you know all all others so i mean it doesn't make any nation invincible especially when you consider the fact that the u.s had reaper drones and uh you know the biggest air force in the world and satellites and everything over afghanistan and still couldn't you know subdue the population there as far as you know the invincibility of of turkey i mean they've been fighting a guerrilla war against the pkk since 1984 and you know when you go back and look at the statements you know for, i mean every year 1985 86 87 you know the, the turkish army would always say oh next year is the last year you know we're going to finally vanquish you know kurdish fighters and guerrillas next year and then every year they would report these huge inflated death totals oh we killed this many guerrillas this year and there's only a few hundred left and then the next year you know they, they you know so like one year they would say okay we killed 5,000 this year there's only 100 left and the next year they'd say we killed another 5,000 without explaining how you know well I thought there was only 100 left you know after last year and so you know like, you know over and over they yeah yeah I mean over and over the math would be you know um Oh, we killed this many, you know, and there's there's almost none of them left. You know, you, you heard that, you know, you hear that over and over. But the fact is, is that right now on a sort of per man basis, the PKK is probably stronger at this point than it has been in its entire history. It's more well armed. It has more public support. It has more capability. It has more technology. It has drones. The PKK, and they even have drones. Now, they don't have Bayraktar drones, but they they're starting to deploy sort of small um kind of individual drones that like a person can buy at like a hobby store and, and use these for surveillance or even for dropping grenades or or for these kind of things. And eventually, you know, the um, not just, you know, Kurdish guerrillas, but all kind of resistance movements will have drones as well, you know, and then the states will develop anti-drone technology for those drones. And then it's sort of it's a constant kind of um, back and forth between you know, states or in oppressive states and sort of uh, insurgent movements and, and guerrilla movements. And, um, you know, the, 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 it's just a constant battle. You know, as, as soon as someone figured out, uh, you know, flight, then they figured out they could attach a, a gun to it and, you know, and kill people from the air. And then people figured out how to shoot down those planes. And then they figured out how to fly with stealth planes. And then they figured out how to, you know, target stealth planes. I and mean, it's just this sort of constant back and forth. Um, you know, battle that, that's always taking place. The real threat to states are going to be all of this technology they're making for their own drones is eventually going to get into the hands of non-state actors. And so, but yeah, I mean, to the Kurdish groups that you listed, you know, the, the Sinjar resistance units, and then you have the YPG and the YPJ in Rojava, and then you have the PKK in, in, in Bashur and in Kandil there. Um, I mean, Turkey is no closer to defeating them now than they were the year before, than they were the year before that. Uh, if anything, they're they're further away um, because the, you know, Kurdish resistance movement and now rather than being just limited to Turkey or even northern Iraq, it's, you know, it ha now has a base in Rojava and it now has large support internationally. And it has it's learned a lot from uh, fighting and largely defeating ISIS and this sort of um, experience that it's gained in warfare um, and, you know, the kind of weapons that uh, the SDF has has been given in 
in, in Rojava and North and East Syria that are now, you know, have access, you know, that the Kurdish resistance movement, you know, writ large has access to, I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're far larger, far more well-armed um, than they ever have been. And that kind of explains some of this paranoia from Erdogan as well. He knows that the Kurdish question is the one issue that can sink Turkey because, you know, Turkey as a state is fairly, uh, you know, homogenous other than its Kurdish population. And it only is that way because it's it largely killed off all the other groups prior. So, you know, the reason why there isn't this massive Armenian population or Greek po population or Pontic Greek population in, in Turkey or even a Syrian population is because the Turkish state massacred them all. And then what you saw is once all of the, you know, uh, primarily Christian groups were, were killed off, the Turkish state then turned its ire on, on the Kurds and you started to have the Dersim uh, genocide and, and uh, you know, all of the massacres that all predated Kurdish guerrillas. So, you know, this idea that when Turkey says, oh, well, we're just attacking terrorists and, you know, if, if they were gone, we would have peace. I mean, there was no PKK in 1938 when the Turkish state was carrying out the Dersim, you know, genocide or massacre against Kurds. There was no PKK in the 70s when the Turkish state was, you know, murdering, uh, you know, Kurds throughout the country. Um, as with all conflicts, guerrilla movements usually arise as a result to state oppression, uh, sort of as a last resort of survival. And the entire time, the PKK has been fueled by Turkish brutality and Turkish oppression. There would be no PKK without the Turkish actions that they do, which lead people to join the PKK. So it's, you know, w without Turkey setting up, you know, torture prisons um, and, you know, j jailing Kurds and, and murdering them and, and uh, burning down 4,000 Kurdish villages and sending 3,000, I mean, 3 million Kurds from you know, Northern Kurdistan into, you know, Istanbul and Izmir because they had to leave their, their homes after they were burned down. And this sort of brutality that you saw in, you know, Diyarbakar prisons where Kurdish uh, prisoners would, would light themselves on fire rather than, you know, further be tortured by the Turkish state. I mean, I mean, real kind of insane brutality throughout the 1980s and 90s that the Turkish state carried out. This is what fueled the growth of the PKK. If the Turkey was sincere in not wanting a world with the PKK, all they would have to do is stop carrying out the oppression that they're doing on the Kurdish population, and then their reason to exist wouldn't be there. But their reason to exist is based on Turkish actions. Once they get oriented to the idea that a political solution is the only solution they're going to get, perhaps the Turkish state, I don't know if it'd be Erdogan at this point, but in the future would understand how to live in peace. But um, this distraction about, oh, our technology is going to win the war is, uh, yeah. is what, I, you know, I think that, uh, you know, I, it, it, uh, it eludes me just right now, but, uh, but, uh, a really great author, um, uh, had, uh, said that, you know, guerrillas, uh, a guerrilla movement, a revolutionary movement is a political military mm -hmm. force. And so, yeah. Uh, the Western powers or the empire that they're against is always thinking that we can defeat them and that this is a military problem. So yeah. from a military point of view, you need tactics, you need technology, you need weapons. Uh, but uh, they're going against a political military force. So, so, so they'll never be able to defeat uh, this is the theory, they'll never be able to defeat a political military force with just a military mindset, with just the idea that, oh yeah, we need our drones, we're going to be able to shoot them down. Um, 
And yeah. so, and so I think about the PKK in, in that sense that, uh, um, you know, no matter what, in terms of their, the assassinations and their ability to surveil troops on the ground and so forth, this is still, a, a revolution is always a, po a political movement. It's not uh, solely just about guns and military and, and so forth. And this is the kind of uh, dilemma, the kind of sand trap that, that empires or, or oppressive nations or occupying nations get stuck into is they try to kill their way out of the problem and every person you kill multiplies. So it's kind of like a hydra where you cut the head off and, and two heads grow back and you cut both heads off and three heads grow back. Um, you can never kill your way out of it. And, you know, Turkey's been trying to kill their way out of giving Kurds their rights, uh, you know, for you know, almost a century now, but against the PKK, at least for, you know, going on 40 years at this point. And, and, and they're not any closer to, to having victory. So, and, and drones are not going to be the kind of magic bullet to achieve that either. Um, and so it's, you know, the kind of the, the missed opportunity, is, like you talked about a, a political agreement, the missed opportunity is the fact that the, PKK's leader, Abdullah Ocalan, you know, is under Turkish custody on uh, Imrali Island. He's been a prisoner there since 1999. So, the, you know, they have the the leader in their own possession to negotiate with him. And it's sort of this this missed opportunity that he. it's almost like he doesn't realize that he could be this sort of, you know, giant in history that he thinks he is now, which he won't be, but he could actually be this sort of, you know, large figure in history if he did work out that peace agreement. Yeah, it um, would just and, be the same and, as Mandela in South Africa, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, he, I mean, he could have a Nobel Peace Prize, and then the, and the lira's strength would shoot up five hundred percent, and now they wouldn't have to waste all of this money to attack, you know, uh, Kurdish fighters, and that money could actually go to developing the country itself, and, you know, I mean, all, I mean, anyone kind of analyzing it from, from the outside can say, man, what, what a missed opportunity, but then when you realize that he can't make that decision because everything in his own personal philosophy and worldview disallows him from doing that, um, he sort of has this. Uh, you know, it's it's sort of a combination of this kind of neo-Ottoman and this kind of, uh, you know, Salafist, uh, Islamist worldview that that goes against everything that the UK themselves believe in, the kind of gender equality and, you know, environmental sustainability and, and democratic rule that that uh, what they call democratic confederalism stands for. This goes against everything that Erdogan believes in. And so he can't even allow himself, you know, to do the right thing in that capacity. And so... Um, he's sort of trapped at this point. Um, you know, there's obviously been rumors that perhaps he's even ill and maybe he won't live that much longer. Um, but he doesn't really have sort of a natural successor prepared because, you know, most kind of dictators usually don't, because if you prepare someone too well to be, you know, your successor, they might actually lead a coup and replace you. Um, and so, um, you know, the Turkish state is just going to basically hum along in the way that it is until he either dies from old age or, uh, you know, becomes incapacitated and maybe tries to hand things over to one of his, you know, underachieving sons who are like complete slackers who have basically failed at everything that they've tried. Or, you know, could he pass it on to, uh, you know, the MIT kind of in intelligence head or, oh, he, you know, or Bayraktar could be the president. <laughs> <laughs> or or Bayraktar, yeah, to come full circle. I mean, could would he since it's actually his son-in-law, you know, would he even maybe pass uh, control of the country over to Bayraktar? I mean, I guess that's anything's possible at this point.
I am still cleaning mud off my boots, days after our escape through the tunnels. Now I am back in Hanasur, which has seen Turkish drone strikes on civilian targets for years. And then we drive by a gathering, and this gathering makes a very fitting ending for our podcast. You see, in December last year, Turkey executed a, an airstrike on the assembly hall in the middle of town. It has no military value. The revolutionary government just uses the hall for the many community meetings for the townspeople to discuss their future and for the gatherings of the revolutionary women's movement. The airstrike did major damage. It destroyed the kitchen and the front office, and uh, it uh, made the building very unstable. It looked very much like the front of the building would collapse. But today, the townspeople celebrate the full rebuilding of their assembly hall. The rooms now look brand new, as if nothing happened at all. It was destroyed by drone, and now we're standing here, and the drones are up above. And shouldn't people be scared to be standing here? Maybe the drone will come back. We'll stay here. We are strong. We see this place like a temple for us. It's something important. So the, the people doesn't care anymore, and we will fighting and resisting everyone who comes and fighting us. Please follow us and subscribe to Radio Kurdistan. Zainab, Zainab, what's got to be more?